The Cutting Edge, WMUL-FM, Huntington. This is Air Check, a public affairs presentation of WMUL-FM, the student broadcast voice of Marshall University. Air Check explores important issues affecting Marshall and the Huntington community. And now, this edition of Air Check. Chuck Yeager is a true hero in the strictest definition of the word. Throughout his career, Yeager displayed distinguished courage and performed several extraordinarily brave deeds. Although we only considered such acts as following his duty, many people recognize Yeager as the first person to break the sound barrier. But that feat is only one of his many important achievements. Without a doubt, Yeager is the world's most famous test pilot, not only because of the records he set, but also because of his determination, his ability to remain calm in difficult situations, and his ability to quickly analyze problems and find a solution. He is one of the toughest pilots, both mentally and physically, in aviation history, and few have ever matched his piloting skills. I'm your host, Nick Madawa. Join me as we explore the chapters of General Yeager's life, this is his story. Chapter 1. Humble Beginnings Charles Chuck E. Yeager was born on February 13, 1923, in Myra, West Virginia which is about 32 miles from Huntington, West Virginia. In 1928, the Yeager family moved to Hamlin, West Virginia, which is about 10 minutes from Myra when Chuck was five. The town's population of about 400 made it seem to him like a big city. Soon after, it was time for Chuck to enter school. Yeager was an average student throughout most of his school career. Instead, hunting and fishing interested him far more than most of his studies. Still, Chuck excelled at anything that required mathematical ability physical coordination, or manual dexterity. These traits would serve him well many times in the later years to come. Chuck credited his father for another trait he displayed early on, an affinity for machines, and a natural knack for understanding them. Albert Hal Yeager owned a natural gas drilling business, and young Chuck found all the generators, pumps, and pressure regulators fascinating. He was eager to learn everything about them. He wanted to know how they worked and why. At an early age, he was helping his dad repair them and troubleshooting the complicated systems that accompanied these devices. The same was true with the pickup trucks his father used. By the time Chuck was a teenager, he could disassemble the Chevrolet engines, overhaul them, and reassemble them with ease. Chuck played basketball and football for Hamlin High School, and his best grades were in geometry and typing. Chuck graduated in June 1941, just six months before America joined World War II. A few months after his high school graduation, Yeager joined the U.S. Army Air Forces. Chapter 2 Earning Wings Yeager had no real interest in learning to fly when he first joined the Air Forces. He simply wanted to be a mechanic. The main reason he enlisted in the Army was because the Army recruiter was more persuasive than the Navy spokesperson. Furthermore, Unlike many famous aviators, Chuck's first encounter with an airplane had left him unimpressed. When Yeager was a teenager, a plane made an emergency landing near his house. Although Chuck dashed over to look at the aircraft, he was unmoved by the experience. When Yeager entered the Army Air Forces, he seemed unlikely to become one of history's legendary pilots. But, in the summer of 1942, 
he began showing an interest in becoming an aviator, thanks to the Air Force's Flying Sergeant program, which trained enlisted men to fly. Jaeger enrolled in the program because he wanted a change of pace. Not to mention a promotion, Jaeger earned his wings in early 1943. After a brief assignment stateside, he transferred to England and began working with the 363rd Fighter Squadron. In early 1944, on his seventh mission, Jaeger shot down his first plane. However, his next mission did not go as well. The widow of General Jaeger, Victoria Jaeger, talks about the general's escape from enemy territory. Airplane on the eighth mission. And then to show that he wasn't so Sierra Hotel on the ninth mission, he was shot down. What happened was they were going to Bordeaux, but the weather was stinking. They were escorting bombers. And unfortunately, the lead bomber, instead of just heading to the secondary target, he said it out loud. So the Germans on the ground below the clouds couldn't see the aircraft, now knew that they were there and they came up and Chuck Yeager was tail end Charlie. He was the last airplane of the P-51s escorting them. He saw the planes before anybody else did. And so he called out to his leader, bandits, check six. And the leader called out break. So they broke into them and there were three ME-109s which uh, shot at him and shot him down and he got a few hits off on them. He parted company with his airplane, as he would say, landed riding the twig or the branches of a tree, riding them down with his parachute, collected his parachute, hit it, and then hid in the woods until and looked around till he could find the poor people. That's what they were told to do. In all of southern France, there's one German tower, as far as I can tell, and that German tower had a bird's eye view of Charles Jaeger coming down in his airplane. So his airplane and he parted company. They knew exactly where the plane was. They knew exactly where he came down. So they were right on his heels. But he found a guy who took him to a barn. They changed clothes, clothes of a husband who was a POW in Germany. He hid in the haystacks. The Germans were doing pitchforks into the haystacks to try to find him. They didn't. They came darn close. And then they took him off to a Russian lady at a spa. She spoke Russian, French, English, and a few other languages, but they wanted to make sure he wasn't a spy. And so he was up on the second floor in her bedroom. She was the manager of the spa, and, and the Germans were at the bottom of the stairs coming up, and she told him to hide under the bed. He said, I hardly know you. He liked to have his own egress or escape systems and be dependent on himself, but he had no choice. He got under the bed. The Germans came in. The Russian lady said, I'm a, and she got under the cover and said, I'm an old lady. <laughs> and I'm sick. And so they backed out because there's no penicillin then and saved his life. And then he was handed off from one member of the Mackey, French underground, French resistance to another for the next three weeks. And eventually they heard the Gestapo was coming to town. So they got him down to the Pyrenees long before the snows had melted. Usually they'd wait till the snows melted, but the Gestapo was everywhere. They got him there as they were climbing over one of the guys he was climbing with got wounded, so he, he picked him up and he carried him up and down those Pyrenees in three foot of snow. He was so humble that if he told that story in front of him, he'd say, no, 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 I just, I just pushed him down and slid down in the snow. He really wouldn't take much credit. He got a bronze star with a V for that. Despite being wounded, Jaeger still evaded the Germans with the help of the French resistance and made it into neutral Spain. Soon after, he returned to England 
Although military rules prohibited him from returning to his unit, he appealed his case all the way up to General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who allowed him to return to his squadron. Victoria Yeager tells what happened when Yeager met with the Supreme Allied Commander. He was in Spain, which was technically a neutral country, and he was staying at a spa, which was kind of interesting. He said, boy, I'd have to tell my kids I, I spent World War II in a spa looking at girls in their bikinis. The U.S. traded fuel for the men. He got back to England, and they said he had to go home because if he was shot down again and tortured, he might give up the positions of the French underground. And he said, no, I can't go home. So he went up to the next guy, and he kept saying, who's your boss, who's your boss, went all the way up to General Eisenhower. And General Eisenhower said, I don't normally meet with guys like you, but I, I've got people shooting themselves in the foot to go home. What's the matter with you? Why don't you want to go home? And he said, I haven't done my job, duty. And so General Eisenhower knew that D-Day was coming, and but didn't tell this flight officer, Charles Yeager, but said, go back to your squadron, do not get on combat, and I will let you know because I have to go up to higher ups and, and to get permission. And so Charles Yeager went back there, and he taught the new guys, the new recruits that came in. And within a couple months after D-Day, General Eisenhower sent word that he could get back on combat because the Maquis in the South had risen up and, and so they weren't a secret anymore. If Eisenhower had any doubts about his decision, Jaeger quickly put them to rest. After returning to his unit, Jaeger shot down five enemy planes in a single day and became an ace in a day. General Jaeger talks about this specific series of dogfights, courtesy of the Academy of Achievement. I was leading the whole fighter group, which means three squadrons. And we only had, we had two boxes of bombers to escort. Our fighter group did. So what I did, I stuck the other two squadrons, one on each box of bombers, and took my squadron and ranged about 80 miles out in front of the, the bomber stream. And, and I spotted 22 ME-109s in a formation climbing up out in front of the bombers, out 80 to 100 miles to make a head-on pass. And I stayed up sun where they couldn't see. I spotted just they were little specks. I had excellent eyes. I, I could watch things without them seeing me. And I kept up sun from the from them with my squadron of 16 P-51s. Finally, when they leveled out and headed over towards the bar, I just moved in behind them down sun. And I got within 200 yards behind them. And, and I wouldn't even let my pilots, you know, they kind of spread out. We still had our drop tanks on because we wanted to keep as much fuel as we could. And I shot down the first two without even dropping my tanks. And when, of course, the explosions, when the airplanes blew up, then they all broke. And at that point, we punched our tanks off and if the whole squadron broke up into, you know, into elements, you know, wing, wingman and his leader to support each other. And we got in a big old hairy dogfight and I shot down, I don't know, uh, another guy I was, hammered him and then a guy, his wingman cut the power and dropped behind me and this one blew up and I broke into him, pulled out at about, looked like about 50 feet before I hit him. And then another guy followed him to the deck and got him down low. Then it's all over with. Later, he even downed a German Messerschmitt ME-262 jet while flying his propeller-driven P-51 Mustang. Throughout his 64 World War II missions, Jaeger scored a total of 11 and a half victories.
Chapter 3 The Speed of Sound In July 1945, Jaeger entered a new phase of his aviation career when he became a maintenance officer at Wright Field in Ohio, a job that entailed flight testing all of the field's different types of planes. Due to his growing experience with a wide variety of aircraft and his outstanding piloting skills, Jaeger caught the attention of the man in charge of the Air Force's aircraft testing program, Colonel Albert Boyd. Boyd invited Jaeger to become a test pilot, and the West Virginian accepted the offer. In August 1947, Jaeger transferred to Murak Air Base in California, which would later become Edwards Air Force Base the premier proving ground for the day's most technologically advanced aircraft. Soon after arriving in Iraq, Jaeger received orders to test the X-1, the experimental aircraft that some believed might exceed Mach 1. Curator for the Aerospace Museum, Bob Vanderlinden, explains the science and purpose of the Bell X-1. The Bell X-1 is the first pure experimental aircraft ever made. It was designed specifically for research purposes on behalf of the NACA, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which was the predecessor to NASA, and the Air Force. And it first flew, well, it was the idea was, came in 1944, 1945, to learn about the problems of compressibility that aircraft were experiencing in high-speed dives during the war. On October 14th, Jaeger flew the X-1, which he'd renamed the Glamorous Glennis, in honor of his wife. Faster than the speed of sound, with that flight, he traveled faster than any human being ever had. A remarkable feat considering the fact that he had broken several ribs during a horseback riding accident only a few days before. The director of Marshall University Special Collections, Lori Thompson, has more. He had broken his rib before the, the flight in which he did break the sound barrier, and they had to modify the cockpit because he couldn't close the hatch, essentially. So they even had to modify the cockpit a little bit, a last-ditch effort. And it was not a smooth ride. It was very shaky, kind of violent in the cockpit. We have the audio recordings of that time, and he's trying to talk um, and give commentary back to the crew on land while being shaken around inside a cockpit with a broken rib. So that, that whole ability to, the only word that comes to my mind is bravery or crazy, you know, bravery or crazy to willingly get into something that you have no idea what would happen and to successfully complete that and then go on to perfect that. He, he later on, he did become a member of the Mach 3 club. So they not only broke Mach 1, but he was able to get to Mach 3. And then all of that science was invaluable to helping the military have bigger, stronger, faster, stealthier planes. But with that also then helps make sure that the pilots are safer and that they know all the things that will happen inside a cockpit when they do reach Mach 1 so that they can manage that in their builds for the newer planes as well. Revealing his characteristic sense of humor, Jaeger radioed to one of his colleagues, quote, I'm still wearing my ears and nothing else fell off neither, unquote. Jaeger's next noteworthy flight occurred in 1953 while he was checking out the X-1A, a longer and more powerful version of the X-1. On December 12th, Jaeger piloted the X-1A to Mach 2.4, another record, although a short-lived one, even though most of the flight went according to plan near the end. The aircraft unexpectedly started spinning out of control and began rotating on all three axes. In the process, Jaeger smashed his head on the cockpit's canopy. After spinning for more than 50 seconds, Jaeger finally regained control of the aircraft and landed it safely. 
a fine example of his outstanding piloting skills. Listen carefully as a recording from the cockpit of the Bell X-1A plays. I don't know where to get back to base or not. That's 25 seconds. I can't say much more. I got so much. Uh, I don't know where I put it. Nothing I ever knew. Christ. That's that, Chuck. I don't know where I tore anything up or not, but. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I think I can get back to the base, okay, Jack? Well, I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't know if I am, Chuck. I'm, uh... Got 1,800 pounds of source. Pressure. I think you'll have to run the structures in the station on this damn thing. That's the mercy. Give me all the food and heading. I'll try to check from the outside. Be down at 18,000. And, uh, <coughs> I'll be on the base about 15,000 a minute. Yes, sir. Those guys are so right. Come on, 50 feet, 30 feet, 20 feet, 20 feet, 5, 2, 20, about 2 and a half, 2 feet, 1, but sure, 25. I had a seat that second and still seeing it. Chuck, did your suit blow on you? Oh, it never did. I opened the, uh, I got up to about 43,000. I opened the windshield, he dropped and I went back down. I think I thought that the mechanic hit my head, Wow. Chapter 4 The Commander In 1954, Jaeger left Edwards and accepted a series of command positions. His first stop was West Germany, where he headed the 417th Fighter Squadron. Three years later, he returned to California as the commander of the 1st Fighter Squadron. After graduating from the Air War College in June 1961, he received a promotion to full colonel. The following summer, he returned to Edwards to head the new Aerospace Research Pilot School, an institution that trained several of the Apollo and Space Shuttle astronauts. And notably, during this period, Jaeger continued to help Jackie Corcoran, the well-known female flyer, learn the intricacies of various jets and support her quest to better several speed records. A mission he had begun in the early 1950s. Lori Thompson has more to say. General Yeager was also an educator throughout his time, serving as a brigadier general in the military, certainly an educator to his people under him in command, and then he certainly was an educator with his work at NASA, translating all of his experimental work and knowledge from his test flights with the Bell X-1, but his other work in other avenues of aviation. He was able to translate that to those early space missions where he could train the early pilots, help them experience what it would feel like to be in these environments. And so that education, again, while he might not have had a technically formal education, he was still a lifelong educator as well, always providing information to those who needed it to, again, better 
our aviators to better our missions to space, to better the military planes, to better the military and Air Force equipment. He was instrumental in that. Despite his workload as the commander of the Aerospace Research Pilot School, Jaeger continued to test most of the experimental planes that came through Edwards. Although many of his flights went according to plan, one mission, quite literally, blew up in his face. Depth, courtesy of the Academy of Achievement. Victoria the plane came into the atmosphere at about a 50 degree angle of attack, and I couldn't get the nose down. The airplane pitched up and went into a flat spin. What you realize now is the airplane's in a flat spin and the engine RPM, because there's no air going through the intake ducts, the engine stops. And when that stops, then you no longer have hydraulic pressure to run the horizontal stabilizer or the aileron or rudder. So there's no, you're in a no-win situation. That's exactly what it is. You sit there and said, you get, but you have one other alternative. That's eject. Well, I also had a drag chute on the airplane that we used for landing. And when I went through, the airplane was in a very flat, slow spin, and I had my pressure suit on. It was in, inflated. And I sat there and watched, and, and I was talking to Bud Anderson, who was chasing me in a T-33. T he was down, way down low, looking at me coming. And I was talking to the space position branch, the guys were recording data, and said, I, you know, I got, a, I got a real problem. They had just no way of getting this thing out of a spin. And so, well, as I went through 30,000 feet, I, went, I deployed the drag chute, which you normally deploy for landing. Well, when I did, the drag chute comes out and it popped the nose down on the airplane, but there's a link that the drag chute's hooked to the airplane with that's designed to shear at 180 miles an hour. That's in case the drag chute comes out accidentally while you're flying, it won't stop the airplane. Well, it just so happened when the nose went down, when it, as I went through 180 miles an hour, the drag chute sheared and the parachute released and the airplane pitched back flat because there's, you know, 180 mile an hour going through the intake duct's not gonna give you engine RPM. It takes about 300 mile an hour. When this happened, the airplane flipped back flat and I don't think it turned, it just fell at 100 miles an hour. Now you've got the egress systems you know, you know them intimately and a lot, and it pays off because a lot of times you have to use them in a semi-conscious state. And I knew my rocket seat that I was riding. I knew its capability. So I rode it down to about 6,000 feet, which is not low, and went ahead and ejected. Well, the rocket seat blows you out of the airplane and gives you about 100 mile an hour velocity away from the airplane. Well, it just so happened that the airplane is falling at about 100 miles an hour. So when I used the seat, the airplane just fell away from the seat, obviously. The, the seat sat there, and then two seconds after you leave the airplane, the lap belt blows open on the seat, which is what holds you in the seat. You've got leg restrainers, cables that hold your heels into the seat for flailing when you come out at high speed, and you know, a lot of things happen. So when this I sat and watched the seat go through a sequencing, you know, knowing when it was going to happen. And finally, the lap belt popped open and there's a butt kicker that kicks you out of the seat. I felt that go and, it, and also my cable cutters cut my leg restrainer cables and I fell through. When this happened, then your F5 release on your parachute is armed. And if, as you fall through 14,000 feet, the chute will open. Well, I was below 14,000 feet, obviously, so 
the chute opened the minute that the, the F5 release said to open, and it did. But the problem was I didn't have enough velocity through the air. See, I was just starting to fall again to pull that quarter bag, which is on the canopy of your parachute. And the reason that bag is on the canopy is that when you eject at high speeds, four or 500 miles an hour, it keeps your canopy on the parachute from popping immediately. It pulls off and lets it reef slowly. Well, that little pilot chute on that quarter bag needs about 60 mile an hour to pull it off the quarter bag. And this is, you know, I don't know anything like this is going on. All I know is that, that I'm free fire. My chute has released, but I haven't got a canopy slowing me down because I can feel it flopping in the breeze. Well, by the time, at about this time, the seat, you know, which kicked me out up here, it also is falling and it became entangled in the shroud lines of the parachute. I don't know this either, but this is the way it happened. And when finally I picked up enough speed, 60 or 70 miles an hour falling with the canopy up there following that that quarter bag came off, the canopy popped and when it popped, a damn seat that's entangled in the shroud line, I'm falling about like this and it flopped me up like this. Well, the seat hit me in the face piece of my pressure suit and what hit me was the rocket, the butt end of the rocket on the seat, which still had glowing propellant burning. And when this happened, it popped glowing propellant onto the rubber seals of my pressure suit. And you're in 100% oxygen. And when it did, it ignited. And then you're feeding 100% oxygen, and, you, and it's like a blowtorch. And, and fortunately, uh, when this happened, the visor on my pressure suit was busted and fragged and it cut my eye down and my eye socket filled with blood so it didn't hurt my eyeball. The flame bag got burned pretty bad on my neck and shoulder. Although Jaeger parachuted to safety, he required several skin grafts. The incident undoubtedly helped bolster his tough and determined reputation. Jaeger returned to military combat in July 1966 when he assumed command of the 405th Fighter Wing, which fought in the Vietnam War. During the conflict, Jaeger flew a total of 127 combat missions. Chapter 5 Honored Hero In February 1968, Jaeger entered the final phase of his military career when he began commanding the 4th Tactical Fighter Wing. The following year, he received a promotion to Brigadier General and became the Vice Commander of the 17th Air Force. Jaeger had become one of only a handful of men who had started as an enlisted man and rose all the way to the rank of an Air Force General. Jaeger formally retired from the Air Force in March 1975. During the 1970s and 1980s, he received a string of honors. In 1976, he received the Congressional Medal of Honor for his first supersonic flight. Then, in 1985, President Ronald Reagan awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. These two medals are the highest honors an individual can receive for outstanding service and achievement. Yeager also obtained several other prestigious awards during his career, including the 1948 Collier Trophy for the greatest achievement in aeronautics or astronautics in America with respect to improving the performance, efficiency, and safety of air or space vehicles, the value of which has been thoroughly demonstrated by actual use during the preceding year, and the 1958 Harmon International Trophy, which is awarded to the world's most outstanding aviator, as well as numerous military citations. October 14, 1997, the 50th anniversary of Jaeger's first Mach 1 flight, Jaeger broke the sound barrier once again, this time in an F-15. That flight was his last official flight in an Air Force plane. 
Jaeger traveled a long and challenging path from his humble West Virginia beginnings to becoming one of the world's most famous aviators. For many people, Chuck Yeager exemplifies the true meaning of the word hero, not only as a record setter and pioneering test pilot, but also as a military aviator. Tom Wolfe said it best, Yeager truly had the right stuff. Special thanks to Smithsonian curator Bob Vanderlinden, the Academy of Achievement, director Lori Thompson, Victoria Yeager, David Okest, Shannon White, WMUL Executive Director Michaela Wheeler, WMUL Continuity Director David Atkins, WMUL Operations Manager Michael Stanley, and WMUL Faculty Manager Dr. Charles Bailey for their time and expertise. And special thanks to my mother, Renee Nitty, and fiance, Julian Manon, for their support throughout this project. It was their support that allowed this project to truly soar. And last, but certainly not least, thank you, 88.1 WMUL, for airing this production and being my home, away from home, these past four years. This has been AirCheck. AirCheck is a public affairs presentation of WMUL-FM, the student broadcast voice of Marshall University. AirCheck is produced by volunteers at WMUL-FM. Stay tuned to WMUL for another edition of AirCheck. Visit our website, marshall.edu slash WMUL, for a complete program schedule.